Welcome to season six of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents and therapists. I'm Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm Anna. I'm a mom, a therapist, a group practice owner, a parent coach, and an author. And I'm her daughter and a kick-ass high school student. Each week, we'll discuss a different topic that is relevant to your family and your life as a parent. And we'll also interview some amazing guest experts. Our goal is to provide an interesting and informational resource for busy parents. While also offering the perspective of a teen. So tune in every Wednesday. Crushed it. Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Terry Egan, and my trusty sidekick, Anna, is not with me today, which I'm a little bit disappointed in because... Today is like my dream guest. My dream guest expert is here with us. I told my daughter about it and she was like, oh my God, mom, you're such a dork because it's not like Beyonce. It's in, it's the Beyonce of my high conflict divorce world. So I'm going to tell you about Bill Eddy, who is our guest expert today. And he is both a licensed clinical social worker and he has a law degree. And so he is the co-founder and chief innovation officer of the High Conflict Institute in San Diego, California. So big fan of his work. I get the newsletter that the High Conflict Institute sends out. I highly recommend that you go and sign up for that if you are at all interested in this topic. He pioneered the high conflict personality theory and has become an expert on managing disputes involving people with high-conflict personalities. He was the senior family mediator at the National Conflict Resolution Center for 15 years, a certified family law specialist lawyer representing clients in family court for 15 years, and a licensed clinical social worker therapist with over 12 years of experience. Bill serves on the faculty of the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution at the Pepperdine University School of Law in California and is a conjoint associate professor with the University of Newcastle Law School in Australia. He has been a speaker and trainer in over 35 U.S. states and 13 countries. He's the author or co-author of over 20 books, manuals, and workbooks. He is the co-host of the podcast, It's All Your Fault, that he co-hosts with Megan Hunter and has a popular blog on the Psychology Today website with over 6 million views. So for those of you who've been listening to this podcast for years, we're in season six right now, you know that I do so much work with families who are experiencing separation or divorce. And of those families, quite a few are experiencing it with a high conflict partner. And it can they can really be experiencing a lot of stress. And there are some best practice strategies out there to support these families. And Bill Eddy is a leader in these. So thank you, Bill, for being here today. My pleasure to be on with you, Tara. Well, I want to ask you, I, and those who listen know that I always ask our guest experts, what led them to get involved in this line of work? And with you having the dual degrees, with law degree and being a licensed clinical social worker, I think you have a really unique perspective. So like, how did you get here? Well, it started out actually as a mental health professional, as a social worker. And so I was trained in 1980, basically in child and family counseling as a licensed clinical social worker. But over the years, I found that I had cases where people were involved in the legal system, especially divorce. And I also started volunteering at a mediation center in San Diego. And I found that I really liked mediation, solving differences, kind of using counseling methods almost. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that I wanted to do mediation. And there weren't really jobs around, but I noticed lawyers were getting paid to do mediation. So I decided to go to law school. And I did, and I became a lawyer at the end of 1992. And I figured I'll practice in family court for a couple of years and then just do divorce mediation and that be my career. Well, 15 years later, I stopped practicing in family court 
while also doing mediation, because I found that my background really helped me in divorce cases in family court, because many of the high conflict cases, and that's what they were called as high conflict families, high conflict cases, included somebody with a personality disorder or traits, which I had worked with for 12 years as a therapist. And so I started teaching and saying, hey, professionals, lawyers, judges, you know, psychologists, mediators, there's this other thing going on here and you need to use other methods. And so that's basically how I got into the high conflict field. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. And you see how it goes, the link between the the work you do as a therapist and then the yeah. work you can do to support these families. I mean, I definitely, when I'm in a PC role, I'm not a, I'm not working as a therapist. I'm a parent coordinator. But obviously, those tools of communication, mediation, you know, conflict resolution, they call, all come into play in a really, like, meaningful way. And, you know, you do have to inspire a lot of trust in your clients as well as the attorneys that I coordinate with to make sure that we're all doing, like, our best work and we're not staying in a place that's really negative unnecessarily. So that's so interesting. Now, you're the co-founder of the High Conflict Institute. Tell me what you do there. I looked at your website. You've got a lot of folks who are part of your team. Um, mm-hmm. what, what, are, what are your goals? So, well, what happened? We founded it in January of 2008. And so we're now starting our 16th year. So we just finished 15 years as High Conflict Institute. And Megan Hunter was in Arizona working for their court system, training for judges, their child support guidelines, all things, you know, a family law related. And and she had me speak to their judges. She said it went really well. Why don't we form the High Conflict Institute? So in January of 2008, we started it basically to train family law professionals in high conflict dynamics to understand more what's personality-based and what to do when that's more personality-based. And so... What happened right away, we got asked to speak to non-family lawyers, non-family judges. And next thing you know, human resources within a year was saying, we need your stuff here. And so we're now, as you mentioned, you know, been teaching in over 35 states. We've been in over myself in 13 countries. Megan's also been in a couple more countries. So it's always been a training institute. But we've also had a huge interest from individuals going through divorce, having a neighbor dispute, having a workplace dispute. So we really develop methods, develop materials, develop trainings for everyday people and especially for professionals. So that's what we do. And we're very excited that after 15 years, it's just really grown Because in many ways, high conflict has increased, especially with the pandemic, and people are tearing their hair out. What do we do? So we really focus on the positive. Here's what you can do. And all pulling together, we can help calm these conflicts and help people move forward in their lives. Well, I see when I was looking through your body of work as far as your books, you know, and I'm not sure you know, what came first, but I see how you have a lot of resources for the work environment. And, you know, our work is so tied to our identity. If we go to work and we feel like we're not able to collaborate and communicate in a way that's effective. And I mean, just the misery that that can cause for somebody's entire life. And, you know, obviously I, I work with the, with families who are experiencing separation or divorce. I don't, you know, do as much with the workplace, but to see that there's resources that expand across settings makes it so this type of work is relatable to everybody. Absolutely. And and let me mention two things that we do. One is our BIF method, which I know you're going to ask me about. about Mm -hmm. And we, we started that. I did the book in 2011. We've been teaching that method since 2007. And we now have a book specifically for co-parents. And all the examples, 28 examples of co-parenting issues. And we also have one for BIF at work. 
So that's our third Biff book. So the general one, the parents one, and Biff at Work, because it's so translatable. The other thing I wanted to mention is our method, New Ways for Families, which is a skills training method for parents going through divorce. And what we, the feedback we get on that, I estimate we've had about 6,000 parents learn those skills through one of the different formats of New Ways for Families. And what they tell us is, I can use this everywhere. I can use this with my own mother. I can use this with my neighbor. I can use this at work. So we're very skills focused. And these skills are simple and translatable, as you said. So it's very exciting to see more and more people benefiting from these. Absolutely. Can you give us some information or some characteristics that help define the term high conflict? Like, how do we know if we're in a situation that would be appropriate to use that term with? Yeah, so it's it's basically we we define it as not trying to resolve a conflict, but prolonging a conflict or escalating a conflict. And when you have one person who's trying to prolong it or escalate it, it it defines the whole situation. And one thing early on I said in the 1990s when I went from therapist to lawyer and mediator was these aren't high-conflict families. These families have a high-conflict person mm-hmm. in them. And often there's a reasonable person and a high-conflict person, and that's why it's prolonged. Not that they're both contributing, although many cases both parents are high-conflict. And so that's a possibility too. So I, when I get to teach judges, I say, you can't assume it's both and you can't assume it's just one. You've got to find out what the information is, what the evidence is, et cetera. But what this means is reasonable people have things they can do to help calm the situation and help bring it down from high conflict. And when like a court orders both parents to do our new ways for families method, the high conflict person also is learning these skills, even though they're not excited about it, but they're learning them and often realize afterwards, hey, that was really useful. So high conflict is prolonging, escalating the conflict. Now, we've defined what, what we call a high conflict personality as having four key characteristics. One is a preoccupation with blaming others. It's all your fault. It's zero my fault, all your fault. The second is a lot of all or nothing thinking so that their suggestions or solutions are more extreme. Like I'm the person that should be the parent and you should just leave town and disappear. You know, they don't need you. And when you get two people thinking like that about the other, you're going to have a very high conflict court case that goes on and on for years. And by the way, judges define high conflict as the size of the file. So Mm -hmm. if you've got like three inches or more, they go, okay, this is a high Mm -hmm. conflict case. And typically spend two or more years in court. That's often what they're going, okay, this case is more than two years old. This is a high conflict case. But anyway, so the four characteristics, preoccupation with blaming others, all or nothing thinking and solutions, unmanaged emotions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's obvious. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you read that in their emails. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just like loud words, all caps, exclamation marks. It's all your fault, blaming emotions pouring out onto the paper. And the fourth is extreme behavior. So we think of things like domestic violence, child abuse, alienation, hiding money, hiding children, hitting reply when they reply all, when they should just not reply, (laughs) things like that. So impulsive behaviors, et cetera. So Blaming, all or nothing thinking, unmanaged emotions, extreme behavior, which may be one person or could be both people, but people also can rein in those tendencies. And that's a lot of what we try to help with. 
I see in the work that I do in all of these, these four points are so relatable and you can just see it translate into all these cases, but the unmanaged emotions one, you know, as a therapist, there's parents who respond beautifully to being given instruction and support in developing coping strategies and, you know, whether it's managing the grief over, you know, the end of their marriage, whether it's, you know, managing like a sense of betrayal or frustration. And they are, you know, some parents are so responsive. And so I get reluctant when I work with parents and I, there's this initial impression they give, maybe they're belligerent, maybe they're dysregulated, you know, maybe they have sent these ugly emails, but for me, I'm looking for how responsive are you to it, to information given strategies, you know, like just kind of helping them co-regulate Whereas other people, they they want to stay in that angry space. It's, you know, they get into like a post-separation profile where they're doing a lot of, you know, things that are manipulative or sneaky. You know, they're turning off the water on the woman in the marital home. You know, they're not returning the kids on time until she's frantic. You know, there's there's things that are there that are are meant to cause distress in the other person. And they're not, I mean, as a... As a separated or divorced couple, like you're, you're going to cause distress in your co-parenting partner sometimes. You're different people. Your marriage ended. You know, if everything was great, you would probably still be married. But there's sometimes really like deliberate, hurtful behavior designed to create this, you know, distress in the other person that really isn't related to the well-being of the children. And so I, I look for that. And sometimes, you know, you see a pattern quicker and sometimes it takes a while to to show up. But oftentimes you're right. We have one person who can respond to the strategies and feel relief that the conflict is going down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important for people to know when that's happening from the other person, that the way you respond can influence the other person to some extent. Mm-hmm. And so you want to do what you can. People don't realize they can't control another person, but they can influence another person. And that's what a lot of the the methods are about. So you're right. I mean, it's so difficult. You know, the term coercive control has been getting used a lot more the last couple of years. And some people are invested in that. And that's their personality problem. But you don't have to accept that. And that's where, where people you know, aren't really clear what, how do I respond to those things? So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the BIF strategy, but I, I do want to mention a couple of the books that you've written that I refer to so frequently, just for the folks out there when they think about what resources to prioritize. So favorite books that I have of yours include Quick Responses to High Conflict People, High Conflict People in Legal Disputes, Splitting, Protecting Yourself While Divorcing Someone with Borderline or Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Don't Alienate the Kids. That's the fourth book that I love. And then the fifth one, the one I want to talk about more specifically today, is Biff for Co-Parent Communication, Your Guide to Difficult Texts, Emails, and Social Media Posts. So this is the book, that last one I just mentioned, is the one that is, I don't require it, but I greatly encourage clients to purchase that book, to review it. It's in my office. We have a playroom in our office and all of the authors who've been on the podcast and been here to promote their books. And, you know, we consider their books to be resources for our clients. We put up on the wall so that clients can just order them when they're waiting in this playroom waiting area we have. And so, you know, the clients know about these books, but the Biff book is the one that's my favorite because it is very clear on the strategy to be used and there's example after an example. So then I, when I review it and we go back and we look at some of the communication that they've had with their co-parent mm-hmm. and then how we can shift that into something more productive that follows that BIF model, parents can make changes very, very quickly in that communication. Because oftentimes by the time they get to me, they are no longer able to communicate in person. They are either communicating through our family wizard or a similar program. Maybe they're doing, you know, emailing directly or on occasion they're texting. And so we're at that level of communication, which means every single communication is on record because it's in writing. 
So we have to shift it to be productive. So tell us a little bit about the BIF system. So BIFS, first of all, stands for brief, informative, friendly, and firm. So brief means usually just a paragraph, you know, four to six sentences. Even if you're responding to two pages of anger and hostility, usually a paragraph is sufficient. Informative is just straight information. Think in terms of who, what, where, and when things like that. It's not emotions. It's not defenses. It's not judgments. It's not opinions. It's just straight information. Then friendly. You want to have a friendly tone. Doesn't have to be super friendly, but, you know, thank you for responding to my request or thank you for telling me your concerns, something like that, and then address that. And firm doesn't mean harsh. It means that it ends the hostile conversation. So you want it to just kind of wrap it up and now we're done. So there aren't loose ends. And you don't want to put something out there that triggers the other person. Like, so what do you think of that, buddy? (laughs) You don't want to hook them back in. And so... If really, it's amazingly simple. The hard thing is to be brief because people want to go on and on and explain and justify and defend. And the reality is when you get into trying to justify and defend, you just trigger the other person to try to justify and defend themselves even more. So instead, you want to just address whatever's in there that's something that needs to be responded to and keep everything else out. Like you said, the brief component in in the information section, there's times where I have them, you know, pull up an email and then we go through and like highlight, where's their real question here that or, or information you need to impart. So when they say something like, you know, I'd really like to sign up Sally for dance classes. And it really upsets me that you don't spend more time exercising with our daughter. It seems like you don't really care about her physical health. And, you know, she just spends all her time sitting. And I also just think she probably doesn't have any friends because of you. Well, the question is, or the thing you need to respond to is whether or not you're going to give permission for Sally to take dance lessons. Let's answer that. And all the rest of it, you don't need to respond and defend about, you know, the exercise you provide in your home or Sally's well-being. And so we start to sort out like what's garbage, you know, what is what is important for you to disengage from and what do you need to be providing information about and how can you provide it in a matter of fact, brief way and how they can construct their sentences to just be simple and informative. And we talk about kind of just that business minded, you know. You're you're talking to a coworker when you when you send an email to a coworker, you might say good morning, or you might end it with have a great weekend. And so, you know how to do that and include the friendly piece, but then also be able to say things with a period at the end. You know, not question marks, not exclamation points, and you know if there needs to be a boundary set, you know to give the impression of like this decision has been made or moving on. Versus, like you said, roping them back into further dialogue that is probably unnecessary for you to respond to. Yeah, let me let me add a couple things with that. So sometimes people say, so I sent a BIF response and they wrote back again on the same subject. What should I do now? And so what I suggest is do a shorter one that may just say, you know, please refer to my email from this morning. That's all I have to say on this subject. Have a good weekend, like you've said, or a good afternoon. So that it's shorter. And and you've already said, and that's all I have to say on this subject. Then if they come back again on the same subject, then you don't need to respond. You don't need to respond. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's times where I see parents when they're trying to do the BIF method, they will withhold information. So I recently had a client who was like, it's come to my attention that you changed the insurance that our child is under. Can you tell me the name of the insurance and let me know if I need to have, if there's a card that you can give me, or if I need to like call a number and get the card. And the person wrote back, you know, what does it matter? Of course I have her insurance covered. It's in the court document that I have to provide her insurance. 
And like, they just kind of wouldn't answer. And I, and so I was like, no, 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 this is, this is something you need to give information on. Like your child has health insurance. Your co-parent has a right to have that information. And you're, when you're doing this like cat and mouse game where they're somehow supposed to say the magical thing that will allow you to give them the information about the insurance, like you're being the high conflict person, like respond back. The insurance is called this. Here's the number. I'm having a card sent to you in the mail. That's it. That's it. That's Biff. Yep. It's mm-hmm. a good example. Let me add something else. And that is sometimes you need to ask a question like that or something else. And so that can be part of a Biff response. But what we suggest is you try to really make it narrow. If you can make it a yes or no, please let me know yes or no. And then put a date and time because often you just don't get a response. So say, please let me know yes or no by Thursday at five, something like that. Or please let me know the the, the policy number by Thursday at five, something like that. So it just mm-hmm. keeps it real narrow focus. But you're exactly right. All that other stuff you don't need to react to. And, and a lot of people think, well, I have to have it on record somewhere that I don't agree with that. And most of their email and text conversations do not need to be treated as a court document. If it does become a court document, then you can write your explanation. But the daily life stuff, when you feel like you have to defend every single thing, you're just part of the problem. And I've been on panels with judges reading from email conversations and saying, now, which person do you think is being reasonable? And they're both saying the other person, it's all their fault. It's like neither person looks good. So that's why a BIF makes you look good. And sometimes your emails may end up in court and you're going to be seen as the reasonable person responding. That's right. That's right. And I understand exactly what you're saying about that desire to defend themselves. And, you know, sometimes the accusations that your co-parent might be making are upsetting, but we're not talking about something that a lawyer or a judge is going to be on the radar. Like the example of Sally doing dance class, and I don't think you provide her with enough exercise. Well, you know, unless Sally's got some huge medical issue that requires her, you know, doctor to facilitate some specialized exercise program this is somebody fussing at you and it doesn't need to be treated as being more serious than that i also think that that parents want to come to these court hearings armed with a huge stack of offensive emails and how they responded and let that parent know how they're you know why they were wrong and the ra- the reality is judges don't have time to read them you know, the vast majority are just kind of like noise and nonsense and squabbling. You know, if there is a real safety concern with a child, then the appropriate authority should be notified. But if it's Mm -hmm. just, I'm going to fuss at you because you gave him the non-organic mac and cheese instead of the organic, no one cares. And so, you know, there can just be this sense of like, but you have to see what I'm going through and you have to see you know, that I did, I am doing the right things and he's saying I'm not, or she's saying I'm not, and that's not true. And I need you to know it's not true. And so sometimes that's where a therapist, you know, and your support system can come in handy is to be able to have that validation from them. But that, that really is a separate situation than what's going to be presented to a judge if it gets that far. Yeah. And you're not going to get validation from someone who's angry with you for whatever reason it is. It's just not the person to to persuade. It's better to get support from your therapist and your support system. Absolutely mm-hmm. right. If you want, I actually could read an example from the book. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Okay. So I like this one because it's it's healthcare and it's kind of along the lines like you were saying. And this is in the middle of the Biff for Co-Parents book. This page 83, if anybody wants to find it. And by the way, in the back of the book is a list on page 219 of 28 different situations. So people use it as a reference, Mm -hmm. Uh, school, gatekeeping, dance lessons, birthday party, exchange and rescheduling, school teacher, illness, healthcare provider, all these things. So I'll, I'll do this one. So this is divorced couple, Carlos and Maria. So Carlos 
emails Maria. When I got Junior today, he had an ear infection and needed to be taken to the doctor. The doctor said it was obvious that he got sick at your house over the weekend and, all caps, you did nothing about it, exclamation mark. He prescribed antibiotics, which you will need to make sure he takes twice a day in his ear. I'm sending the bottle with him to school tomorrow to make sure he has it in his backpack when you pick him up. Once again, you have been, all caps, irresponsible about Junior's health care, and I have to clean up after your irresponsibility. I will discuss this with my lawyer and decide whether to return to court to reduce your parenting time for the health and safety of our son. Okay, so how do you respond to that? So let's try this. Carlos, thank you for taking Junior to the doctor. I will follow the directions for his medication. I was not irresponsible with Junior, and he had no signs of an ear infection while with me. As you may know, those symptoms can come on very quickly. I'm fairly sure the doctor did not tell you that he obviously got his ear infection while with me. I will keep you advised of Junior's condition while he is with me. So let's walk through. Was this brief? Yeah, pretty brief, one paragraph. Was this informative, just straight information, no opinions, judgments, emotions? Mm, there's some stuff in here that sounds like opinions and defenses. Well, he, he implied that she was probably lying about what she stated that the doctor said. So that really stuck out to me. as Yeah. If- and so she's trying to defend against that. And when you defend, it's kind of like quicksand. You start pulling yourself in. So you've got to be careful about that. Then was it friendly? Well, maybe, you know, I'm going to do what you said, but I'm sure he didn't tell you that. And I haven't been irresponsible. Was it firm? Did it end the conversation? Maybe, but maybe it's going to keep keep an argument going because now Carlos is going to say, but you were irresponsible. Mm -hmm. So let's try another response and see what you think of this one. Carlos, thanks for taking Junior to the doctor. I will follow the directions for his medication. Junior had no signs of an inner infection while with me. As you may know, these symptoms can come on very quickly. I will keep you advised of Junior's condition while he is with me. And that's it. So was that brief? Yeah. Was that informative? Just straight information. She did say that he had no signs of an ear infection, but she didn't argue it. She just stated it. And that these symptoms can come on quickly. So that's information, not argument. There's a defense there, though. She's definitely herself. But she's she's not arguing as much as just stating it that these can come on. Was it friendly? Yeah, I'll keep you advised. Thank you. And was it firm? Did it end the conversation? Yeah. Now, one thing we suggest is to think in terms of that there's no one right way to write a BIF response, as long as it's brief, informative, friendly, and firm. So someone might write that slightly differently. Somebody might leave out mentioning symptoms can come on quickly. I find sometimes it helps to explain as long as it doesn't have an argumentative defensive tone. So anyway, that's an example of partially responding the first time and then doing pretty much a BIF response the second time. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really great example of a BIF response. And I love that there's all different scenarios in there. And sometimes it takes practice, like when I'm guiding clients towards more of a BIF response. It's like, you know, for me as the clinician, I'm like, all right, are we going to go from, you know, 60 miles an hour response that's heated and long and all of that to, you know, bringing it way back to a pure BIF response? Maybe not. Sometimes we just work on, you know, focusing on the information part or focusing on, you know, using less judgmental language. And we talk about like what phrasing, you know, and sometimes we'll pull up past communication to point out like what's judgmental versus factual, you know, if if there's an accusation in there or a passive aggressive statement, like as usual, 
You're not paying, you know, you didn't pay attention to our son, you know, as, you know, as you exhibited the entire time we were married, you always have your mom do all the work or whatever. And so we talk about, you know, those examples as being completely unproductive and, you know, it's just not becoming when you're in the, in the court circumstance and somebody's looking at your communication and our family wizard or whatever to see that type of belligerence or, or passive aggressiveness. Right, exactly. And, you know, with that, something you mentioned earlier that was a good idea is is go through what you've received and highlight what needs a response. And then nothing else do you even respond to. And in there, like in that example, Maria is saying, you know, I'll thanks, take him to the doctor and I'll follow the instructions. And that's in Carlos's thing, all that was important was I took him to the doctor and he has this medication and you'll need to give it to him. Mm-hmm. You highlight that and ignore the rest. And it, it really, I think it really helps. Now, one of the co-authors on this, Kevin Chafin, who's a family therapist, said he has clients rewrite the email they received as a BIF communication. Mm-hmm. And so you're only looking at the question and then responding to that. And That's a good idea. I do the the highlighting thing and like, you know, if it's highlighted in green, this is what you're responding to. If it's in red, like I want you to kind of, you know, take that away and recognize like that's not what we're responding to. But I do like that idea. And when I think of like, so let's say we went back to that scenario and when Carlos originally reached out to, to the mom, you know, had he written a, a biff to begin with, if he right. had said, you know, came to my attention that that child had, you know, an ear infection, I took him to the doctor, the doctor recommended he take these medicines for 10 days. If you have any other questions, we met with this doctor today, you know, sometimes, sometimes you meet with like a nurse practitioner or whatever, and just right. provide that information. Or if it's, if I wanted to say to my co-parent, like, According to what the doctor said, some signs that, you know, some things we can attend to to let us know the early signs of the ear infection would be a fever or him pulling at his ears or something where you're sort of like giving the information of like, hmm, here's some things we can look for so that it doesn't get so far progressed, you know, because the accusation was you ignored our son. You didn't go to say, okay, well, here's some things we know next time to look for to catch it a little earlier. And you talk about this is what the, the information the doctor gave me versus I think you should have noticed that he was pulling his ears right. and that, you know, and you're you're negligent for not noticing that he was probably doing that. You know, I mean I think there's different ways you can present it that can sound collaborative and helpful. And let me emphasize, I think one person writing in this style can influence both people's communication. And I've I've gotten feedback. There was a lawyer a little bit ago at a conference said, Bill, my client's been using the BIF method and the other person's just writing all this horrible stuff. Well, guess what? The other person's now responding in the BIF format and they don't even know what's a format. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you can influence the other person because this looks and feels reasonable. It's like you stay out of the mud and it may help the other person pull themselves out as well. Well, sometimes people can realize how unhinged they sound or how foolish they sound when the other person is more calm and measured. And, you know, I tell clients like the most powerful like weapon you have is is the emotional regulation. It's not the mean words or the snide comments. Like when you're the most controlled, dignified, professional person in the room, that's what gives you power. And, you know, when they start to use the BIF method and they start to see how that works and it, like you said, it influences the other person because man, when we're both in the muck, throwing mud at each other. He did it first. She did it first. I'm just responding to her. What do you expect me to do? I'm not going to not respond to that. And when we're like, nope, you you don't have to. Like you can right. have dignity, especially when I tie it to some of the parenting they're doing. You know, you tell your kid, you know, to not react when their brother says something rude or to not get inflamed by the kid who teased you in PE, yet you're 
writing these long missives in the evening after the kids go to bed, that's seven pages of why your ex ex is a big, huge disappointment. I mean, sometimes when they put it in context of what do you want for your children? How do you want to role model this? Not that they're going to see the communication, but just it's a really hard skill to teach if you're not able to do it yourself. Exactly. There's the concept I like about mirror neurons and the idea that we mirror we kind of automatically, as humans, mirror each other's behavior for group action. And you don't want to mirror that high conflict behavior. What you want to do is communicate in a way that you want the other person to mirror. So it's really that idea of be the communication that you want the other person to use. One of the final questions I have for you is when you think about the you know, you know, the work that you do with with all, all sorts of organizations, what are helpful things that you wish other people would know like therapists? I'm thinking like therapists, I'm thinking like judges or family lawyers. Like, what do you wish we could just know and do differently? Biggest things I've been thinking a lot about lately, because I do a lot of consultation with people in court cases, the clients, and also with their lawyers. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things is to realize that, that some people have these high conflict personalities. And one thing is, in many cases, they rarely change that the other person, this is how they're going to be. And that parenting plans, communication, et cetera, needs to take into account that this is how this person's going to be. They're not going to just flick a switch and become reasonable or cooperative, that you may be always dealing with someone that's a bit of a roller coaster. And so learn management skills rather than getting it over skills. And even after divorce is when some of the worst conflicts come up. Post-divorce litigation and judges, everybody knows that's the most heated stuff. So be prepared and pace yourself. Have a good support system so you can kind of manage this roller coaster. So that's one thing about personalities. The other is that... Many high-conflict people are persuasive blamers. Remember, I said they it's all your fault, 100% somebody else's fault, but they may persuade decision-makers. They may persuade lawyers, mediators, judges that it's your fault when, in fact, it's mostly their behavior. And so we have to have an open mind and look beneath the surface and I'm trying to teach judges about that, lawyers, mediators, and therapists. Don't assume when someone's accused of something that it's true. Have three theories. First is it might be true. Domestic violence, substance abuse, alienation, all that. It's possible. The second is it's not at all true. And the person that's making these allegations is the person who is actually acting badly, uh, maybe even projecting their own behavior onto the other person. And the third is it may be relatively equally both people, but you have to look under the surface because all three of those theories of the case look the same on the surface. There's anger, there's blame, there's hurt, there's fear, all of that. You have to look under the surface and I see a lot of times people just go with the first the first alley and and you've got to keep that open mind. And I think that will make people be more cautious and not as quick to judge each other and see one person is all good or all bad, but look more at behavior. What's the behavior under the surface and what should we do about it? Alienation's a big area now, 20 to 25 percent of contested cases. And that's one that people often get backwards because they either miss it and think, oh, well, he's abusing the child when in fact it's what's being said to the child about him. Or it's the opposite. Oh, it's alienation when in fact there is something the other person is doing. So anyway, that's, I guess, two main points is often there aren't, isn't change and this is who you're going to have and that they can be persuasive blamers 
and that you've got to watch out for that. That is so helpful. And I think it's refreshing to hear, you know, a professional like yourself acknowledge that it's not just a matter of, well, we're just going to do these things and this person is going to get to a space of productivity and and health. There is going to be, you know, in, in those cases, there's going to be a lot of like managing the situation, you know, bolstering your coping. I think when we have high conflict people who are abusers, you know, and are actively engaging in post-separation or post-divorce abuse, when I go, I sometimes talk to like the Charlotte Bar and the and the lawyers and the judges and who come and like, you know, get monthly professional development. And so I've spoken a couple of times about post-separation abuse and about the need to make sure that we're not perpetuating the abusive cycle by assuming that the louder voice is the one who's correct and that those accusations are valid. And we do need to look deeper because what can happen is that loud voice, then people start to believe it. And then there maybe even their own lawyer is doing things that inadvertently sabotages that parent's ability to protect themselves and their children. And then there's, you know, opportunity there to hold individuals responsible for when they violated a custody order or their behavior has strayed beyond, you know, like what's decent, given the fact that these people are going through something so emotional. So, I mean, I I feel very passionate about that topic you know, post-separation abuse, it's something I just see a lot of and in really tangible, you know, legal abuse, financial abuse, like you said, the alienation, you know, and having the people, the professionals be able to identify who is the safe parent here, who is the parent who's going to be more of a productive communicator or more gracious in extending flexibility towards their co-parent and really truly doing things to foster a healthy relationship between you know, parent and child, and it can be really tricky. And that's where I like to do the work I do, because I get to be involved in like kind of their day to day, whereas judges and even lawyers are like, you know, the big picture, like, let's look at the summary data. And I'm going to try to make a decision, whereas I can be part of, you know, whatever, if we meet, meet weekly, or every other week to be like, what's the communication that's happening? What are the Mm -hmm. action steps that each of you have taken? Have you followed through on recommendations? And so I can see that almost in real time and, and have that all documented. And sometimes people start making better decisions just because they don't want to get busted. And that's a good start. That's somewhere. We're starting somewhere. And other times, you know, people, it doesn't really matter who they're in front of. They're not going to do the right thing. And that's also worthy of noting. Yeah. Well, I I really want to congratulate you on educating people and getting the word out, your work with clients as well as with your podcast. So it's it's so true. It takes takes all of us pushing in the same direction, I think. Well, if I can continue to support the work you do, you know, please keep me in the loop because I'm over here in North Carolina and we certainly have a lot of needs over here. And I, I definitely view myself to be a leader in this area and I want to continue to grow as a professional and as a support in my community. And so all these resources that you provide, you know, and that I can continue to, you know, promote in the work I do and, and, you know, I've written books. I've focused more on parenting. I haven't focused on writing books specifically about separation and divorce. I, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I work hard to make sure that what I'm saying is unique. And I feel like what you say is so relevant and it's, you know, your resources are so easy for people to access that I end up just relying so much on them. But there's always places we can grow as professionals to serve these families more. And I, once again, I can't say how much I appreciate you being here today and, and dedicating an hour of your week to us. My pleasure. And and before I go, let me just mention we have two websites now. Okay. One more to professionals, highconflictinstitute.com, www.highconflictinstitute.com. And the other is geared more to individuals, including parents, with our New Ways for Families course. And that's called conflictplaybook.com www.conflictplaybook.com. And there's an online course, 12 sessions, that we're encouraging judges to order both parents. So let's say you have a reasonable parent and, and they get it right away, but it also is a way to get the other parent getting some skills. 
and they do see a difference. So these are some things that help. I was not aware of that. I'm happy to know that because when my work as a parent coordinator, there are times where I have the opportunity to give recommendations to, you know, and have judges follow through and support that recommendation for things like this to make sure the parents are given tools. And it's just, you know, not just completely rely on me to do all the educating and managing, but for them to be able to access these resources. So that's definitely something that I have the ability to encourage judges to use as a resource. And if it's something that can be accessed online, even better, because that typically allows people to do it at a time that's convenient for them. And actually, if you want, is email us. You can go info at highconflictinstitute.com. We can send you a handout for judges explaining the new ways for families method and that we recommend both parents be ordered. Then they don't need to decide anything at that point, they can get people right away getting some skills. There is a practice here in Charlotte. I think it's called South Lake Counseling. And they got on their website. And when we we have like a community Facebook page for the therapists who are local to Charlotte, they talk about using your new ways for families programming. And so I wasn't really sure I was going to ask the owner, you know, was there a certain training that was provided to that that gave them the ability to to make reference to your programming? I mean, it was... They can use it. Anyone can use it. Okay. But we also do a 12-hour training for coaches with the 12-session online program. And the coaches tend to be mostly therapists, some lawyers, some mediators, some parent educators. So we do have a training for that at the High Conflict Institute website. Okay, that must be what they're referring to. And that might be something I should put on my list of things to do for professional development because the more tools, the better. So, well, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate your time. Once again, I want to remind our audience that Bill Eddy is our guest today and his last name is spelled E-D-D-Y. There's a ton of resources that you can access on his websites as well as you can get access to the books just off Amazon. I think that's probably how I got them. You know, and if you have follow-up questions, you know, Come to our website at www.egancounseling.com. Send us any questions you have. We'll do our best to answer them, or we'll reach back out to Bill and get his expertise. But thank you, Bill. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tara. Best wishes with your podcast. Take oh, care. Thank you. Thank you.